0: So, uh, good evening, uh, everyone, and uh, welcome to LSE, and welcome to the Literary Festival. Uh, I'm uh, Denisa Kostovichova, and I'm an Associate Professor in Global Politics at the Department of Government, and I'm a member of the Conflict Research Group uh, that is hosting this event, And we are um, an interdisciplinary group of scholars and uh, get uh, together both the staff and students who are interested in the issues uh, related to uh, conflict. So um, a publication of an excellent book is always a wonderful opportunity to have a debate and uh, especially when the debate is so badly needed uh, when it comes to uh, conflict. in an effort to try to understand conflict, not just for the conflict's sake, but also uh, to try to figure out the ways how to end them and also how to move from uh, conflict to peace. So um, the publication of a book, Nations Torn Asunder, by my colleague Bill Sane, gives us that uh, opportunity uh, tonight. This is a book recently published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Bill Kisan is my uh, colleague at the Department of Government, and uh, he has uh, written and uh, published very, very widely on issues related to democratization, nationalism, uh, Irish war, and this is not his first book. Uh, there is a whole long list, um, of books to his name, but uh, I will just, for this occasion, I will single out his monograph, The Politics of the Irish Civil War, also by Oxford University Press, and his uh, edited volume, After Civil War, Division, Reconstruction, and Reconciliation in Contemporary uh, Europe. This was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Um, and in this book, uh, and here I should speak, sort of speaking as an academic uh, working on these issues, I think uh, Bill makes a very daring intellectual effort to tackle the issue of conflict in a way uh, that he discusses it, where he looks at both the causes and consequences of conflict and what shall we do in the aftermath of conflict. And he does that by taking sort of a long historical view uh, and also by looking at many different different cases of, of conflict, which is not actually common in the academic literature at all. We either tend to go sort of very very broadly looking at it statistically, or we really drill into the minutiae of one conflict. So that was uh, that's something that really what distinguishes uh, this book in the in the kind of scholarship on uh, conflict. Uh, but It is my really special pleasure to welcome tonight to the LSE Anthony Lloyd uh, to debate uh, Bill's work. Anthony is uh, an award-winning journalist and war correspondent reporting for the Times. Anthony has won numerous awards, and again, I can just single out a couple, if I may, and that is uh, uh, the British uh, Press Award for Foreign Stringer of the Year. That was uh, the beginning, but also his amazing career progressed and uh, continued in the same way, and uh, he's also won, rather recently, the Amnesty International uh, Award, and he was also the correspondent uh, of the year. Anthony has been reporting on conflicts over two decades now, and traversed the battlefields from former Yugoslavia, Chechnya, Sierra Leone, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, and I don't think I've uh, probably mentioned uh, all of them. But he is also an author, and he's uh, written two critically acclaimed books, My War Gone By, I Miss It So, and uh, Another Bloody Love Letter. Uh, My Paths? Have crossed with Anthony's during the Balkan wars, so going back 20 years, and um, as someone who's um, also well made the switch from being a journalist to being an academic and sort of kind of having been there and smelled the conflict, and as someone who's followed uh, Anthony's both the reportage and uh, his writing, I can say that there aren't many writers who can really capture kind of, you know, what kind of conflict, really the gritty kind of grittiness of it and how it feels like in such a piercing reportage and prose as uh, Anthony does. So I'm really uh, very grateful that he could be here tonight with us. So I'd like to just uh, welcome our speakers to LSE. Thank you for Thank you. So what I'll just say is that, um, you know, we are here at the literary festival and the topic is uh, revolutions. Are we a wrong panel? So, well, not quite, because, you know, if we think of Syria, if you look at Iraq, the first thing you think about is war, but actually... Uh, both these conflicts really started with something which tried to look like a democratic uh, revolution. So here, I think, comes our conflict, and that's how we we bridge it. And the same thing is obviously in former Yugoslavia and in the former Soviet Union. So um, I'll just stop here and hand it over to Bill, and the way we'll do it is Bill will uh, tell us more about why he wrote the book and kind of intervention he intended to make in the scholarship for about 15-20 minutes. Then Anton will respond and then we take it from there, maybe with a little conversation between us, and we'll leave up plenty of time for your questions.
1: Okay, thanks very much for the introduction. Um, I should say that when I conceived of this book first, uh, there was a historian in my department who said to me, you can't write a general book on civil war. And I said, why not? And he said, well, civil wars have happened right throughout human history, in every type of society, and for every conceivable reason. So you can't really say anything general about civil war. And then I told him, well, I'm also intending to teach a course on civil war. And he said, you can't teach a course on civil war either. And I said, why not? And he said, well, because there are no general books on civil war. This was about about seven or eight years ago. So we have general books on war, thousands and thousands of them. We have a lot of books on revolution. And we, of course, have a lot of material on individual civil wars. But I felt that what was actually needed was a kind of book that kind of brought it all together. But it is quite amazing to, to kind of consider the fact that you know, you have so much writing on war, and it's maybe because war is always seen as a kind of patriotic kind of endeavour. And then you've got a lot of material on revolutions, you know, big revolutions like the Russian Revolution, but not so much in general on civil war, despite the fact, as Denisa has just alluded to, every revolution brings a civil war. So it's quite interesting to reflect on, on why there wouldn't be, up to now, a kind of systematic approach to this particular subject it's almost as if as a form of conflict it was something that you had to kind of repress and really what created the opportunity for people like me to start working in this area was the end of the Cold War because when the Cold War ended all of a sudden the scholarly attention shifted from conflict between states international security issues like nuclear security and things like that, and many people who were interested in conflict began to focus on the phenomenon of civil war. And when they did, the first thing they found out empirically is that something very important has been happening in the world of conflict since 1945, which is a basic pattern that there has been a very dramatic decline in conventional interstate war. Accompanied at the same time, decade after decade, by a steady rise in the number of conflicts we would call internal wars or civil wars. And two political scientists in 2003 counted at least 127 conflicts that we could say were wars and were largely internal happening between 1945 and 1999. 70% 70% of these conflicts were also happening in new states. So therefore, another important pattern which I explore in the book is the connection between decolonization, the problems of post-colonial societies, and the occurrence of civil war. The third thing that happens in this period is that the statistics show us that actually civil wars which came to replace interstate war as the dominant form of conflict that scholars were interested in, these civil wars are actually just as destructive as wars between states. So, for example, if you were to take a case in Africa like Mozambique, independent in 1975, civil war starting in 1976, ending 16 years later, over 900,000 people probably killed in a population of 15 million as it was in 1975. So incredibly violent and destructive conflicts. And the last thing I think which has been part of this renewed interest among social scientists in civil war is civil war is also seen as a problem for development. So that, for example, in the continent of Africa, between 1975 and 2009, out of 54 states only eight of them did not experience an internal war of some kind or another. So hence the interest of economists in this part of the world and the question of whether or not it's development and underdevelopment that is behind this particular form of conflict. Now, Denise was very dramatic when she just described my book as a kind of an intervention I'm not too sure I really regarded it as a kind of an an urgent intervention. It just had two basic goals. One is I started from the assumption that most people, which would include most people in this audience, already have, on the basis of education or historical reading, knowledge about one big civil war, like the Spanish Civil War, the English Civil War, the Russian Civil War. And really what I wanted to do firstly in this book is just to synthesise and present the recent social science literature of the last 25 years to an audience that would be more familiar with work in history or literature or whatever. That was the first ambition. And the second ambition was also to take this social science literature and subject subject it to a historical critique Hence the reality in this book is that I have many cases that are quite contemporary like Angola or northern or, or Angola or S- Mozambique or Algeria but I also go back historically to ancient Greece and I look at the literature there about the conflicts that emerged there so it had that other intention to kind of create a dialogue between disciplines that were more social scientific and perspectives more rooted in the humanities but as part of this attempt to try and synthesize and evaluate this literature, I divided the chapters up quite neatly between the first chapter being how do people define what civil war is in the, in the, over across the different centuries? What is a civil war? Secondly, what have the patterns in the occurrence of civil war been since 1945? Have they been rising in incidents? Have they been decreasing? Where have they been taking place? How many conflicts will we see in the future? Then I get on in the third chapter to the question of causes. Are there really general causes of civil war that we can, say, explain so much violent activity taking place in different parts of the world? Then I get on to the next question of consequences and what the consequences of civil war war are. And finally, then, in the second last chapter... I also have a chapter on what the literature tells us on how societies recover from conflict. So in a sense, there's just an attempt to try and synthesize and evaluate and cover as much ground as possible. Of course, there's a basic historical question here. If it's true that in the period since 1945, there's been a systematic change in the nature of warfare, Well, what is it explains that why this particular period of history is so violent in this way? Is it the case, actually, that civil war has always been with us and expresses something innate in human societies and that all that's really happened in the period since 1945 is that we've seen the creation of maybe a hundred new states in which civil war can take place, and that is what explains why there are so many civil wars, or are there other contextual factors? But I think when you come to this particular topic, it's quite interesting that when you look at the classic accounts of civil war, whether it be by Thucydides when he was writing about the Peloponnesian Wars, Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century, or Carl Schmitt, the German legal thinker at the beginning of the 20th century, a basic question is, whether this form of conflict is really something that we have to explain by temporary contextual factors or whether it's actually inherent in human societies and in political orders. So if you go back to Thucydides, for example, he had a very distinct conception of what the ancient Greeks called stasis, something that was an inevitable consequence of democratic politics taking place in the absence of highly developed structures of coercion, which we today (coughs) call states. The Greeks didn't develop states, they developed city states and political communities. And he saw that this type of moral collapse that societies fall into, which we might today call civil war, as one pretty predictable consequence of competitive open and democratic politics, so it was kind of inherent in the way the polis ran its life. Then we have Hobbes, of course, who had a whole vision of civil war, where he actually asked us to imagine what would life be like if we subtracted organised institutional politics. What is life like if we don't have the state? And then he had a very clear idea that the way people behave in civil war is a reflection of things that are constant in human nature. And then if we think of Carl Schmitt, he didn't think of civil war in terms of moral collapse or state collapse. He actually saw civil war as the purest expression of politics. The highest form of polarisation is when a political community takes the conflict that is inherent in the international arena and finds a domestic expression in the war of one part of a nation against another. His conception of politics was that this is the purest form of the political. So when you think of people like this, and I think they're, they're not theorists, they're not trying to define what a civil war is, but their conceptions of civil war And they're very close to saying that it's actually something which cannot be avoided in politics. Now you might think this is a very melodramatic, exaggerated claim. But one of the things you've got to consider when it comes to looking at civil war over time is humanity has yet to devise a regime form that has proven to be immune to the disaster of civil war. Every regime form, city-states, kingdoms, monarchies, federations, has experienced a civil war. The only possible exception to this, people would say, is what we call advanced, consolidated Western democracies. They have proven until now to be relatively free, depending on definition, of civil war. But nonetheless, that perspective is quite important and it goes back to what this historian said to me seven or eight years ago, that these conflicts have happened right throughout recorded history in every known context for all sorts of reasons. Now if this is the case, and and this might be where the discussion will go later, the question really is, how do you avoid civil war? How do you prevent them? And what does this literature tell us about this question of conflict prevention? If you went back to the 17th century and the 18th century, the clearest answer in Europe is that if you want to avoid the type of conflicts which were in Europe between Catholics and Protestants, states and other states in the 16th and 17th century, the answer was the modern, coercive, strong state. The state became the antithesis to civil war that was its raison d'etre, only the state should be given the right to wage war. If you go into the 19th century, you have a different answer, which is that the unity of any political community is based on it being a nation, and therefore the purpose of the state is to make sure that people adhere to this nation, they feel allegiance to the nation, and that the nation should be sufficiently inclusive to prevent people challenging it. So the nation becomes the solution to civil war. But the problem is that all the statistics will tell us that in this modern period there is also a very high correlation between state building, nation building and civil war. The solutions are also the drivers of civil war. And then you get on to the last possibility that we in this advanced liberal democratic world may not be experiencing conflicts which are fundamentally different to conflicts in the past, but we have a wider set of tools at our disposal to deal with them. And then you get this whole literature on reconstruction, reconciliation, transitional justice, democratisation, or so forth. The jury is out, but nonetheless, that may be really what people who work in this area and who are quite optimistic about these tools really believe is that if we get beyond the context of the strong nation state and create a more kind of globalised political community with a wider circle of humanity being at the forefront of our thoughts, then we can get beyond this problem of civil war. And I'll end my talk by giving my own point of view indirectly and quoting from... A very famous book that was written decades and decades by a Yugoslav communist who became a dissident, Milovan Djilas, called Conversations with Stalin. And he was a Yugoslav communist during the Second World War who was sent to Moscow by Tito to meet with Stalin over various things. And of course, part of the story is about his disillusionment with Stalin and people like that. But in this particular story, at one stage, he was sent to what is now eastern Ukraine. And he went to eastern Ukraine, and he noticed two things. Firstly, he said Stalin is a great meritocrat, because all the people he saw fighting for the Russians in the Second World War were young, able, highly intelligent officers. But also he discovered something about Marx's theory, because Marx's theory was, that the reason why there was civil war was because of class division, and when we expanded the class revolution and communism took over the world, civil wars would also disappear with private property, the state, and social class. And he was discussing this possibility in eastern Ukraine with this group of you know, communist officers, and they said to him, no, what's going to happen is that once we take over the world and we abolish the distinction between different states and establish a universal social system, that will be the time when mankind finally destroys itself in a universal civil war.
0: <laughs> 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 thank you, Bill. Um, Anthony.
2: Denise, thanks, and thank you too for that lovely introduction you gave me earlier. Um, hello, everyone. I come here from a, a rather different background and Perspective, which, as Denise had described, is that of principally as a journalist, and I've been a journalist covering wars for about 25 years, and, and have been involved in reporting on uh, many of the civil wars that Bill examines in his book. Um, and one of the, though I'm not here to critique Bill's, but one of the, one of the first things I really noticed was my a ch- the challenge to my own perspective. Um, provided by his book, because it arrived, and I was like, hmm, mm, what's this going to be like? And it was so different, and refreshingly so, in its perspective, and it made me realise that though I've, I don't know, reported on 15 or 20 conflicts in the last 24 years, my perspective in doing so is so limited, it's, it's certainly valid, but it's so limited from the position of being on the ground that it's like reporting on the Repetition of a texture without necessarily being able to see the shape. So it was more than useful, it was extremely stimulating as well as useful to read Bill's book from an entire perspective, from an entirely different, more academic set of eyes, and to be able to define for the first time some of the patterns and shapes of conflict which I had seen earlier but hadn't been able to discern in such a way. There was a particular section he wrote on fragmentation which rang a real chord with me as a theme I see again and again always in civil war. The fragmentation not just of a country or a state or a city, though the fragmentation of all of those things. The fragmentation of the individual, the fragmentation of humanity which is required, it comes about and it is also required in order to get to a position where we are today, particularly in which warfare is fought with cruelty as an aim, not as a byproduct of war, but in so many cases as something that is exalted and is an aim. And uh, also, I just wanted to say, as a journalist, one of the many lines that stuck in my mind before I talk about a particular case study, which you might find interesting, um, was the inclusion uh, by Bill of a line from the late American novelist Saul Bellow. And it's a line on journalists, which sort of took me back, but in a good way. And Saul said, I'll, I'll paraphrase this a bit, that public consciousness today is like a large virgin territory, just opening itself to settlement and exploitation. The way the media constantly rushes to invade this consciousness with the proliferation of conflict, crises, and disasters can be compared to the Oklahoma Gold Rush. <laughs> and I, I sort of liked that. I was slightly appalled by it, and I wondered if I was one of those people, but I probably am. Um, but as I say, I'm not here to critique Bill's book, but what I, am, I want to talk about was an aspect of it, and it recur, uh, occurs in his uh, chapter on recovery and is to do with reconciliation after, after civil war, which I always find a particularly interesting subject, uh, more than man's ability to fall apart. It is, can man come, come together again? And particularly, you know, does reconciliation have to exist in order for healing to occur? And how important is justice in achieving reconciliation between riven communities? Um, if reconciliation is necessary then what order should it come about in restructuring a a post-civil war war community um, after the establishment of security and and potentially economic prosperity or parallel to it? Um, Now, first of all, I want to make it clear that I don't have all those answers because the answers are, are variant depending on what culture the war has been fought on and it's the nature of that civil war. But one thing I will say is that Every civil war that I've ever worked in, the first thing that the common people clamour for in the immediate aftermath is security. That is the first thing they want over and above justice or address. They want security. Um, However, what I do want to talk today is about today to fit in with that aspect of reconciliation and justice, um, which echoes off Bill's chapter on recovery is a very small but simple case history in Bosnia, which I was involved in in this particular case in November, December 1993, and which I was fortunate enough to go back and revisit 20 years later to see how the the people concerned viewed concepts like justice. Um, Just to recap briefly, I, I lived in Bosnia for most of the duration of the war, which went on from 1992 until the end of 1995, when... Dayton effectively uh, ended that war. Um, and um, this particular case I'm bringing up now is, I think, very rel- uh, interesting because it talks about the way victims of war crime prioritise what is relevant to them in over the issue of reconciliation. Um, and so this is how the case went. I was in central Bosnia, living in a town called Vitez, uh, and in November of 1993, which was a, a, a tough winter, even by Bosnian standards, very snowy, very cold, a furious British captain, United Nation, uh, with a attached to a United Nations force there, um, came to me and he said, my men had to do something dreadful this morning. We had to go into no man's land and collect the remains of three prisoners who had been converted into human bombs, forced out across no man's land, and detonated as they got to the the edge of their own trench lines. So these were Bosnian prisoners, Muslim guys, who had been captured earlier by Croatian uh, HVO troops, beaten very badly for several days before being wired up with explosives, their hands were tied, and they were forced back and told, if you stop walking, we'll shoot you. Uh, And there was debt called running on rolls to the explosives, and and, and they they were blown up in this way. Um, now, one of the first things that struck me as I started to investigate this crime was how much detail was very, and, and how easy it was, how much detail there was, and how easy it was to get that detail because it occurred in a tiny community. It occurred in a small town called Novi Travnik, which was very close to Vita, where I was living. Novi Travnik had been jointly lived in by Serbs, Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Croats and Bosnian Muslims before the war came. When the war did come, it divided those communities across the front lines. So the same guys who had lived alongside each other fought against each other in a very, very small area of space. So everybody knew the identities of the three dead guys, knew the identities where the families lived, but also knew the identities of which group of HVO Croat militia had seized these guys in the first place um, beaten them and then done this to them so it was a very public war crime with a very great number of known details in a very small place that affected a a huge amount of people Um, and the three guys I'll just give their names here for the record because I mean this is all known but it's their detail but we should recall them. there was a guy called Mevludin Muslimovic another guy called Nejad Muyak and another guy called Enes Heyrich. These were the three prisoners who were killed. And as I started to investigate this, I got a lot of help from the Croatian community, some of whom were quite appalled at what had happened, as well as, of course, the Muslim community. The first thing that came apparent is the different way that men and combatants in the same units can behave. Originally, it turned out, as I investigated this thing back in 1993, there were four prisoners They'd been seized in a raid by the Croat force, a night raid, on, on, on the Muslim lines. Four guys were captured alive. As they were led back into the town, Navi travelling at dawn, a large mob of Croatian men were trying to punch these prisoners, spitting at them, some guys said they want to kill the prisoners. But the guards of these prisoners had been to school with the prisoners before the war. And so in this case, the guards were intervening quite violently... Croatian guards against a Croatian mob and there was one Croatian man saying, give me a gun, I want to kill them now one of the guards said, hey I'll give you my gun but if you want to kill somebody you can take it up to the front line if you're so much of a man because if you want to do killing then you can be a fighter with us on the front line rather than kill prisoners so it was a quite sort of aggressive altercation between two sets of Croats: the guards guarding the prisoners and the mob but then that changes the four prisoners are taken to a headquarters They're put in an improvised cell. And then over the next few days, other soldiers, local soldiers, are given the chance to beat them. And the scene is, you drink a lot with your friends, which is what happened, they were getting very drunk, and then you beat the prisoners. uh, Sometimes with baseball bats, often with just fists and, 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 and feet. One of the prisoners is so badly beaten that he can't walk, which saves his life on, I think it's day five, when a group of four dominant Croatian soldiers come and say we need these guys to do a task they take the three men who stay well, can walk, they take them away they have them wired up with explosives and the last time they're seen alive is when they're forced back over the lines and they are detonated as human bombs the Croatian local command admitted to me at the time, because it was also public and well known this thing, when I went and challenged them on it they said yeah, it was us it was uh, Small group of our guys led by one man who had lost his mind. Um, and I went and I, I visited the families in depth and spoke to them and spoke to them several times again during the course of the war. Then I left Bosnia. Then I have this unusual chance to go back 22 years later, 20 years after the war's finished, to go to the place where this crime has happened and to go back and find out well, look. How's it worked out? Everyone knew the identity of the killers. Have they been picked up by the tribunal? Have they been put on trial? And if so, how do the families feel about um, what happened? Well, the first thing was, it was sort of strange, was despite the fact everybody knew who did it, despite the fact that I'd written about it in the Times in 1993, despite the fact the UN were involved and had done an investigation based on having to pick up what was left of these guys at the time, no one had ever been brought to trial, so trial just hadn't happened. So justice, as such, hadn't happened. And I was dealing with families who uh, you know, were hoping that justice, which was so supposedly a part of reconciliation in Bosnia, a prerequisite to having communities recognise what had been done by elements among them, their own communities, while giving victims a sense of redress, just had not occurred. Bill refers to this desire, I think largely amongst victims in civil war, to forge a better place in the wake of civil wars, the morality of the shaken. Uh, and that was certainly a, a phrase which really stuck in my mind when I thought of this case again. Now, the first thing was that these families, at the time, during the war, largely they'd said to me, we want revenge. You know, we want bloodletting to pay back what has been our loss and this terrible thing uh, that's been done to to our guys. That had changed fairly dramatically um, when I go back 22 years later. The first thing I want to say is all these families were very poor families. Um, One thing I notice, and Bill refers to it uh, in, in his work, One thing I notice in covering wars is the first thing that happens when a civil war starts is, by and large, the rich bail out for the simple reason that they've got more options. And the option is, hey, you know what, we're out of here. And that's very important because I think actually it then affects the way the civil war is fought. And it also affects the strata of of competitive units. Uh, And it means usually, not always, but usually you've got tough working class guys who are leading the fighting. Um, and that shapes shapes the type of fighting. But, but just to say, these families were, were poor families. So going back 22 years later, the first family I come to, the family of one of these poor prisoners who were murdered like this, I find his brother. He was still extremely traumatized because himself during the war he had been a soldier on that stretch of line, and had to identify what was left of his brother after being blown up. Um, and that trauma was very obvious in his, in his face and in his bearing, and he spoke about it. But what he said was very interesting. And I'm going to say word for word what he said on the issue of justice or its absence or, or vengeance and how he felt now. He said, my mission is to raise my children and to make them decent human beings. I will never erase the moment that I saw what was left of my brother from my mind. It is a picture that has been laid upon my brain. But I'm a plasterer, a tradesman trying to find work now in a town with 70% unemployment, who has to put my kids through school and raise my family. Time does its thing, but I find the greatest struggle after the war has been the fight for life and a job. So now working men of my class we don't have much time for politics and ethnicity in our struggle. When I have got some work, I don't question whether or not I'm working beside a Serb, a Muslim, or a Croat. Now, this is a theme which came out to one or other degree amongst the others, too. It was economics was driving their prioritisation. The second family I visited of one of these three guys, it was quite a difficult time because my visit to them... 22 years after the crime happened, by pure coincidence, came with a phone call from the Bosnian War Crimes Tribunal, which was total coincidence. But of course the family thought, oh, look, this English guy's pitched up and he's igniting the case again. That's great. But it was, it was pure coincidence. Um, the other thing that really complicated my talk with the second family was the mother, who was a very elderly woman at that point, whose son had been killed in this atrocity, had never been told, nor wanted to know, of the details of her son's death. All she knew was that he had died as a prisoner. So she was still the matriarch of the family. So my conversation with the entire family took place with her in the room, but I couldn't talk about the details of the crime. We could only call it the crime, um, which was a very sort of odd way. I'm sure she did know, but it was just not something that could be mentioned, and all her surviving sons, who now, uh, sort of guys my age, had, had come out to me and said, look, we can talk about this, and go into some depth, but you can't actually say what the crime is. You just call it the crime, right? Um, what was interesting was that Mother, this is now an el- elder woman in her, in her late 70s, her best friends before the war were a local Croat family. But when I saw her 22 years later, after her son had been killed, the first time within a couple of weeks that she'd been able to go back to that family who only lived 200 yards away and see them not because she said she hated them but she just felt too emotional in trying to bridge the friendship she'd had with them the awareness of what had been done to her son by that community and her inability to be able to go back but she had finally gone back and said that all of them sat in a room weeping with the emotion of the occasion now one of her surviving sons, who was there with me, was a guy called Sabahuddin, and he said something which I think is also very relevant and to do with forgiveness or the lack of necessity of forgiveness in reconciliation. He said to me, though I can't ever forget the criminals who killed my brother as a prisoner of war, nor can I forget those Croats who did try to save him. In this way, I have found it possible to live by side by side without forgiveness of an evil minority. Uh, And what was interesting, as he was saying that to me, was he had two of his children in the room, who are now in their early 20s, too young to remember the war. And their perspective as they listened in to this talk of their family, talking what had happened to their uncle, killed in this war crime, was amazing, because they were... You know, they sat there and was like, God, this is the first time we have ever heard our father speak of the war and of this war crime. This is the first time we have ever heard him speak in this detail. And I said, well, how is it for you? What's, how's the mix? Do you hang out with Croats? And they were like, well, look, most of our social life is at a nearby nightclub called Tron. And we drink together there, we dance together. It's fine, but... We can all agree, the son said, that the war was bad. But beyond that, the divisions are still quite strong. No one is ready to criticise their own side for whatever their own side did in the war. Much of the schooling is segregated now. I mean, it wasn't segregated before the war, but it is now. And he said, if conflict ever begins again, that it will be much easier to form battalions along sectarian lines just by marching children from classrooms straight out into their units, such was the segregation The third family, I found, were the poorest of the poor. I found them in Sarajevo. Um, We remembered each other from the war. Um, The mother was in an extreme state of depression, was on antidepressants. It turned out that four days after her husband had been killed in this ghastly atrocity, her eldest son, who is also a soldier, happened to have been killed on the front line. Um, And... That, that was something I already knew, but she had never lifted herself out of that depression. So most of the talking was done by her eldest daughter, um, who had lost her father in this atrocity, a young woman who, was well, she was 30 years old, she was called Esmeralda. And she was totally illiterate, because the key years of her schooling had been lost to the war. They're a very poor family. It had never happened for her afterwards. Um, But she said something very interesting too. She said, I need to know what happened to my father and who killed him. And she still said she needed to know that now. As it would give me some sort of sense that the state for which I gave so much actually cares about us. But it doesn't. Bosnia as a state doesn't seem to exist. Give me an answer, a job, childcare, somewhere to live, and forgiveness might come a bit easier. So... I bring up this case because there's good things and bad things about it. There's no real, unanim- there's not a unanimous voice between them as to exactly how justice might have served them had it actually occurred. But there are some really interesting consistencies in, in, in what they said. First of all, despite their po- poverty and regardless of their absence of education in, in one particular case, they were searingly uh, articulate, not just concerning their own feelings, but of their priorities in life after war and how they rationalise those priorities. Security and economy seem very, very important. Uh, And they had an ability largely to separate a concept which we get quite hung up on in a post-Christian culture is you have to forgive someone in order to reconcile. It seems you don't don't have to forgive someone in order to reconcile. You can sort of reconcile as a period of acceptance it doesn't mean you forgive them, accepting what has happened. Um, now, of course, as Bill notes, the wounds of history cannot be healed without leaving scars. Um, and I accept, as he mentioned, that it can be far better to see reconciliation as a, as a revolving door and a process rather than an, an end state. Um, it's, I want to say also that I had spoken to survivors of massacres elsewhere in Bosnia who had gone to The Hague had testified against the perpetrators of the crimes done against them and their communities, had seen the perpetrators sent down to prison for a long, long time, but still wouldn't wouldn't uh, reintegrate with uh, the community of the other side, despite having seen justice done. So there's no absolute answer in Bosnia's case to how people feel about whether justice is done or not. But the prioritisation of, of people's feelings around it, I think, was very, very relevant and, and gave me some cause for hope. Um, I wanted to close with what I noticed was most people there who were victims of a war crime devoted huge amount of energy and thought as to how to live together again. And beneath that, for many, was a desire, I thought I discerned, to want to live together again. I didn't mean they weren't angry, in some cases embittered, or whatever, but I was more with Rousseau than Hobbes on this. I thought that was an innate desire to want to create something better and want to do something good, whether that was achievable or not. Uh, and the last words I wanted to close with were the words of a 36-year-old Bosnian woman called Valida, who I saw on this trip going back 20 years after the war had finished, she was the victor, uh, survivor of a, a massacre in a different area near Kluch when, as a 15 year old girl, she was a village girl. Started the war, there been some fighting in the forest near her village. The next thing, Serbian forces turn up in the village, and she said a very poignant thing. She said, I've never been out of the village, I've never seen so many people in my life. And there was a big unit turned up. They taught some of the houses, screaming and shouting. They corralled people out of the houses into the middle of uh, the village lots of shooting in the air, and then they started mowing down the villagers in in the middle um, with with their assault rifles, and 56 people were killed in this village, including Valida's father, her 16-year-old sister, and her aunt, who was seven months pregnant at the time. Valida managed to run, escape, she grabbed the hand of a little boy that she thought was her brother, and ran to the forest, where she found that the little boy wasn't her brother, it was uh, someone completely different. Uh, in this sort of confusing thing she described. She survived. She returned years later, uh, still deeply traumatised. She said she can't, of course, deal with crowds. The only first big crowd she saw was a crowd of guys screaming and shouting, and then kill everybody. Uh, And she can't deal with raised voices. But what she said was, the love I miss from my dead father and sister, I've transferred to my husband and my son. Happiness is relative, but I can say that I am relatively happy. I was a victim, but I became a survivor. And after finding I was a survivor, my ambitions changed. Uh, I wanted to be a good daughter, a good mother, a good wife, and I feel I achieved all that. Sure, I was lucky and I met a good husband, but I worked for it, and that is what I live for my family. It would be too selfish to let my traumas influence my son's life. I want him to know what happened to my sister and father, as by forgetting evil, we would do even greater evil. But I don't want it to prejudice him against someone just because they're called a Serb name, say, Zoran. And this was, I thought they were very moving words, and it was a very common thread I found amongst many of these survivors. They did not want the prejudice that had scarred or damaged them during the war visited upon the next generation. And it I don't think it was necessarily a moral choice. It was a sense of fighting back as best they could against what had been done to them and the prejudice by which they'd suffered. Um, and I think, to finish with, that what I saw there, and it is different and varies from war to war, was nevertheless a slither of some light and optimism amidst the overall very dark subject of civil war and fratricide. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Okay, well, um, maybe I'll just ask Bill if there is something you would want to respond to immediately. If not, I think I'll, I have a few questions and I'm just kind of trying to push myself to kind of ask a question which can work for both of you so you give us both perspectives from sort of both ends. Um, well, I just need to comment on one thing and I'm not sure this is a definitive uh, uh, question but uh, it has something to do with the intimacy of violence and this is what you referred to um, when you talked about the prisoners and the guards having been in the same school, and um, to you know when we talk about uh, conflicts and a type of violence that we think it's almost gratuitous, so different, why is it so different uh, between people who 've known each other? From different uh, from the previous life, um, I think that's something that that's puzzling. I mean, as I said, this is not exactly a very framed uh, uh, as, a, as as a question, but th- this is something which comes up in conflicts, and it also comes up, let's say, Northern I- Irish conflict. You know, when we are talking about neighborhoods, we are talking about um, people. Who uh, know each other? And now I don't really want to dip into the theory because you know you discuss Phil at great length whether there is something that we call the new war, which is opposed uh, to uh, what is called in the theory as old war. Uh, for example, like a Second World War, and one of the distinguishing characteristics is the fact that in new wars there is no front line. You really don't know, you know, where that line goes as opposed to, you know, when the wars were fought previously, you know, the armies facing each other and not even being close. And, of course, you know, the blurring of the lines. And, I mean, your whole beginning of the book is about how the lines are blurred in, in the conflict. And one of the blurring lines is, you know, that you don't know Who is the victim, who is the perpetrator, who is a civilian, who is a soldier. I mean, in all these wars, you don't even anymore have the concept of a uniform, right? Uh, Recently, I was uh, 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 participating in a debate where we looked at, uh, um, sort of, uh, you know, examined the issue of radicalization, and uh, one of the... Ways to radicalize uh, youngsters in the areas far away uh, from the ISIS held territory is to be in these pictures where these fighters look cool with glasses and the way they're dressed, there is nothing as uniform. So anyway, so I went from this idea of closeness, right that breeds violence to kind of whether it has to do with a different type of war, which is, both in the same buildings, uh, streets.
1: So, who do you want to...? Uh, Both. Well, okay, I'll start. Um, There's a book written by an economist in SOAS called Civil War is Not a Stupid Thing. And he takes this title from an Italian novelist who was writing about the First World War who said that, you know, wars between Italy and Germany and Italy and France are really stupid because you're actually killing someone on the other side who's exactly like yourself. And the great thing about civil war, which is not stupid, is there's much better chance that you'll actually know who it is you're killing. <laughs> so I think this this type of... These themes go back quite a long time. Um, I don't... I mean, I... We always have to talk about this new wars versus old well, I'm wars. I'm not saying, stuff, yeah, I didn't want
0: to. I mean,
1: I, 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 I'm fine. not comfortable with this kind of dichotomy, but let's just say that going back, I mean, there's a historian in Harvard, David Armitage, who has also written a very good book recently about civil war. And he says that our whole conception of civil war is indebted to the Romans because they understood what a war between citizens was. And, of course, a characteristic of war, citizens against citizens, was that you couldn't escape. The violence was coming from very close. There were no front lines. And that might make you fight to the finish because you couldn't escape. So it's been there the whole time. But I'll just say one thing about your first set of questions. Um, And it goes back to how our understanding of what is going on, for example, when Anthony is talking about Croatia, and Bosnia, or whatever? Is it new? Has it been part of experience for time immemorial? Um, if you read the five pages in Thucydides' Peloponnesian Wars that are devoted to what happened in what is now Corfu, he shows that whereas in wartime things like family feeling can be completely inflamed and destructive. In peacetime, they're the bedrock of society. But the problem of what he called stasis, which was a kind of moral distemper, a moral dissolution of society, was that all the things that allow us to live together, even being a professional, like being a professional doctor, can actually be poisoned by this condition of stasis. So something like um, leadership. Normally, leadership is a good thing. But put it in the context of what he called states. So I think that's part of the answer that civil wars are a crisis of social relations. They're not just about state power and territory. They they they're, they're too close for that. And I think I think that that's how I would answer it. I th-
2: I think too that by their nature they're very internalised conflicts, and internalised conflicts are always much more heated. You can't you can't escape from it. It's like a the worst version of a family route. Something very hot. The insult you will feel of someone you know is more of, uh, is, a, is a harder hurt than an insult from from a stranger. Um, if you're at war with another country, an interstate war, there's a sense slightly of sort of advance and retreat, one side of the other, and probably a status quo will, will ver, revert along national borders at the end of it. But when it's a civil war, it's a, an internal conflict, a fight. Uh, usually, usually or often, to to the finish of, of a particular entity, um, unless there's intervention or, or or stalemate, it's usually not not protracted stalemate. Um, I've read a number of the. There was a point in the Bosnian or the desecration of the dead in some areas. It used to be particularly appalling. They used to mutilate the faces. And we we'll always say, say, well, how come they carve up the faces after the guys have been killed on the battlefield? And one of the threats we examined examine was because they see themselves in the person they killed. They just want to eradicate it because it's also cl- almost so close. Um, I don't know if we were right, but that was certainly a, a trend. That's not to say that in inter-race wars are usually the most violent um, or often the most violent. So it's not just... The answer isn't just uh, internalized conflict leads to the greatest heat and, and fragmentation, um, but it can be, and I think it is, because it's all within, uh, and so the actual heat and intensity of it is much more.
0: So I'll just ask one more question, and then we'll open up the floor. And this is something that also you touch on the, on in the book, and I also wonder how you see it um, from being there, and there is, there is this idea, on the one hand, that war is chaos, right? Complete breakdown of law and order, of morality and everything. But on the other hand, and you touch touch on it in, in your book, there is order in this disorder, right? And there is also sort of, you know theorists who say that the reason why our wars, you know, seem to last longer is because there is no interest in, in ending them, right? So, you know, so we talk about, uh, you know, war, uh, people who basically profit from war, right? For whom war is uh, business. And then, of course, it, you mentioned in your book that that continues in peacetime, which is again another, another topic. So... Can you, you know, you know? So what is it? I wasn't quite sure, you know, wh- whether you, whether you really, ultimately, are in the camp of a sort of a war is chaos, or maybe you're with David King and people like that who, who talk about the order in this disorder, right? That nothing is as it seems in, 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 in war.
1: You want me to respond I first? I both of you, yes. Yeah. Well, that's a really hard question, I must say. Um, I mean, one of the the themes of, of the book is that um, the literature that has been written in the last 25 years is still very indebted to a kind of Hobbesian view of the world, that the linchpin of social and political order is a strong state, and once you don't have a strong state... Well then, given human nature, all hell breaks loose and that societies are reduced to anarchy. Now, I'm not sure I can answer this question 100%, but it is the case that one of the reasons why civil wars occur is that they are fundamental transitions from empire to the nation-state, from authoritarianism to democracy... And in these transitions, there's a power vacuum. And that power vacuum may exactly be that the instruments of order, policing, the army, they've collapsed. But I wouldn't see this in a kind of Hobbesian sense as something that's anarchic. Because if you think, for example, of how people behave in prisons in the United States, like it's highly conflictual, People identify not with the institution, but with their racial groups, they segregate into gangs, and it's built for conflict, but it's totally institutionalized. So I think what happens in these conflicts, and uh, this is just my speculation, because in some cases, for example, the Marxists are right, that if you have a power vacuum, people will mobilize on class lines, and you'll have a class civil war. That's not anarchy, it's socially organized. Otherwise, like for example in Ireland in the 1920s when the British moved out, there was no forces of order, it took some time before the forces of order got in control, there was also this mobilisation, but this mobilisation was not based on social class. It was much based, more based on local organisation and things like that. So these situations of anarchy are socially defined. And maybe that these situations of breakdown crystallize what the social order is very clearly. So I'm not at all in this kind of view that, you know, that civil wars are just I mean there are so few cases where societies just become anarchic and remain anarchic. I think yes, you're probably right that maybe David Keane and I mention other people who talk about systems of violence, yes, maybe war does become institutionalized. But it's an interesting question what I mean, Syria seems to be the nearest example we could possibly have to total breakdown. But nonetheless, there is incredible organization going on.
2: Uh, It's very complicated. Chaos and order. Uh, And it disturbs me slightly now that the general consensus which is emerging in the wake of the Arab Spring and the revolutions across the Middle East is that hey, we were so much better off with really nasty, Mm -hmm. repressive regimes than we are with revolution, but in fact the nasty repressive regimes created revolution (laughs) and I think a lot of the barbarity, for example, that's going on in Syria is especially because of the torture uh, the the strategy of torture, should I say, by uh, the Assad regime and the thing about Once you torture people, it doesn't make them think, God, that was really nasty, I'm never going to hurt anyone else. They come straight out of it like, right, now I'm going to give it to someone else. And so many thousands and thousands of people have been tortured in Syria who have then become part of the rebel opposition, uh, that they're now absolutely inflamed with the desire to do really nasty things to to, to their enemies. So a repressive, strong state can produce chaos as the cycle of time passes, given the right factors. Uh, You know, it's not that one thing produces just um, security. Um, It's also very interesting, some of the case examples where a state of insecurity or civil war has gone on indefinitely, and that has become a state in itself of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Bill referred to one, (coughs) particularly the conflict in southeastern Turkey and northern Iraq and the Syrian areas of, uh, Kurdish areas of Syria, should I say, Involving the PUK uh, and its derivatives. And it's gone on for, I think, pushing 40 years now because the unique confluence of different circumstances. You've got ideal mountain sanctuaries in northern Iraq, southeastern Turkey. You've got good, secure, long term funding lines involving people trafficking, drug trafficking. Uh, you've got the fact that conflict involves all borders, two failed states, Iraq and Syria. Uh, you've got a, a sort of perfect storm of circumstances which can allow plus unresolved deep political uh, problems, uh, which can allow a conflict to go on at various levels indefinitely uh, on and on across the decades Um, I would also say that you can fight civil wars in a more ordered way, I mean the American Civil War was fought in uh, almost as two nation states and America recovered with extreme alacrity after a civil war. It's not always that everybody goes completely bats and the thing goes down oh. like it does in, in Syria or in some of the West African Sierra Leone civil war, where it was, there was sort of no one was in control of anything uh, beyond the, the killing of each other. Um, so each case is sort of unique. I don't think there's a governing rule there.
0: Shall we open it? Questions? And, uh, so please introduce
3: yourself before you... Ask. Yeah, my, my name
0: is Tim. I'm a complex student here at FSA. Um So I do know at least two people
3: on the panel. Um, uh, we have a rowing... mic oh, okay. Uh, well, okay. yeah. Is this on? Anyway? Yeah. Okay, so my question is actually linked to the other questions before. And um, it is about the nature of these civil wars. Um, so the big question also from the 1990s and the early 2000s is... Whether these civil wars are state formative? Will they, if not meddled with, create new, more homogenous nation states that are actually more peaceful in the end? Or are they state disintegrative? Um, will they, because, for example, uh, globalization, economic globalization, develop a political economy that then will perpetuate these conflicts indefinitely? So, this has huge implications how how we should deal with these conflicts, because, I mean, there are scholars like Edward Luckwack. A position I'm not very fond of, but he he says, "Give war a chance." You know, these wars are actually state-formative. If we let them play out, in the end, we'll have a more peaceful world, more nation states, even more than we have now, but more peaceful ones. Is there any pattern that you can that you could that you have observed that would you know, substantiate one or the other position?
1: Well, we get back to this question of whether we can really say, in general, Mm. that civil war is formative in terms of states. Um, That book, Denise, mentioned, um, that I edited about reconstruction, reconciliation and division, was a study of European cases from Finland to Kosovo. And one of the arguments I made is that when we consider the question of whether victories in civil war are compatible with state and nation building, it seemed to be that in the cases like Ireland, Finland and Spain, and to some extent Greece, that when there was a victor and such an outcome, over time these societies incorporated this civil war past into their identity, and they did develop. But as you yourself seem to suggest, that this plays out very differently in the context of globalisation. And the question I had at issue in the book is that if we talk about reconstructing a national identity that is inclusive after a civil war, Well, haven't we got beyond the point where we're only going to reconstruct one national identity? Is it not the case now that if there's going to be peace in Turkey in the future, that the Turks will just have to accept that Ataturk's formula won't work in the 21st century? That basically, if there's going to be peace there, the Kurds have to make some inroads on the official definition of Turkish identity. And that was the difference between the later cases in that book and the earlier cases. The earlier cases experienced civil war and they developed in isolation. They went through autarky and and they had strong national identities. But in these later cases, they're all subject to international intervention. Think of Cyprus for example. You know How is Cyprus going to be put together again as a non-partitioned entity without this international intervention? So that's part of the answer, but the other question, and I think Anthony mentioned, is that, of course, the literature is full of themes of dissent, decay, disintegration, fragmentation, but we do have cases like the American Civil War where, for most Americans, particularly Republican Americans, this was the catalyst not only for development of the state, but for democracy. Um, now, whether that was because of its position in the 19th century, its geopolitical position, I don't know. But we tend not to pay much attention to those cases. And so I just all I can say is it, it's very hard to say there's a pattern.
2: It's also very hard, looking at contempt, the most contemporary civil wars, to see what has produced something that looks stable or long-lasting. Bosnia, well... The best, the jury's out. I mean, it's certainly not looking great. Kosovo was looking all right, but only through the sort of sectarian rebalancing that followed in the in the wake of the, of the war, whereby most of the minority of Serbs simply left. Uh, and now, I think, I can't say peace is being challenged there, but it's quite... It's an uneasy time. For, I'd say it looks less stable now than it did five years ago. Algeria, well, it has stabilized, but it was an existing state to begin with. Yeah. Uh, Syria, there's, there's no end in sight, I don't think. And I think even if you look at just the demography there, the difference between the Sunni majority and, uh, and the Shia minority, is going to be very difficult. For Assad to reconsolidate Syria as a single entity, uh, even if that were, were possible militarily, which I think it's probably not, Iraq seems to be falling apart in some or other slow, slow fall. Um, I was struck in Bill's work by one of the studies he did in which civil war, the proportions of which civil wars. ...had ended in outright military victory mm-hmm. for one or other mm-hmm. side... ...that mm-hmm. then didn't restart again... Mm-hmm. ...and which civil wars were ended by a peaceful negotiation... Mm-hmm. ...which e- either did or didn't... ...and it, I just wrote call the table... ...showed that basically a really nasty civil war like uh, Sri Lanka... ...that ended in outright victory for one side... ...and appalling bloodletting... ...was likely to stabilise and probably not restart and the bloodletting would be probably overshadowed over the period of time between other conflicts <laughs> which were ended by peaceful negotiation, which did restart, um, which I thought was interesting and, and depressing at the same time. Rupert Smith, General Rupert Smith, wrote a book a few years ago called The Utility of Force, in which, is, which is worth reading, in which he argued that changes in constraints in our ability to use real force Plus changes in the paradigm of conflict mean that we will increasingly live in an era of unresolved, long-term conflicts, uh, and that seems to be at this moment in time. What certainly, as a journalist, I feel when I look at you know conflicts around the world, and most of them seem old, mm. or re old, long-term, or reigniting conflicts, or reignited conflicts, should I say? Mm. So. I don't see it going anywhere particularly constructive.
0: Mm -hmm. My name is Dari. I'm from the Russian Institute at King's College. Um, I wanted to ask uh, what do you think is the role of information, media, and social media in the current uh, civil countries? And I don't mean reporting, I mean whether information and social media can play a role in inciting civil war.
1: Or in the practice, or, or
2: in or. Like yeah. I think at the beginning there was an assumption, particularly with the Arab Spring, um, mm-hmm. that social media was going to be something hugely beneficial to the way that conflict was uh, conducted. Uh, so let me explain that that thought a bit more. that by putting out images of bad things that regimes were doing to people would stop those bad things or allow for some sort of intervention to prevent them or whatever, and everyone would agree that, oh my God, look at what they're doing, that's dreadful, uh, and, and, and it, would be, it would bring about a positive outcome. But I think instead what we found that social media has at best been, uh, uh, in the very best case, a neutral entity in civil war, but in the worst, there's a whole great tranche of, uh, of people who like to promote their violence and cruelty on social media, safe and sure in the knowledge that an awful lot of people who see it will be incited to do exactly the same. So I think social media has, has been, you know, totally a double-edged sword. It's certainly insight. Um, and um, the concept 50 years ago that one side, we'll put it this way, 50 years ago, people who murdered their prisoners or, or cut heads off generally tried to mask that sort of stuff because they didn't want to be perceived as the bad guys. Whereas now we live in an era where people like, totally want to promote that stuff because it's not only acceptable, but it's seen as desirable by lots of people. So it's played a huge part in modern war and its, re, it's effects and implication are wildly... Worse than we could have ever mm. ever imagined, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. I just want to add something. We have another question. Okay. Yes, yes,
1: please. Question: um, Is the nature of civil war different? Once where, you describe know, where the, uh, the pro uh, there's an um, sort of difference. Uh, yes. What happens when that's uh, something like an ideology that cuts across all of those things?
0: Even within a family and um, generations, does that change the nature of civil? I think you understood that
1: the English civil war—you know—you get wars and, and, and opposition within one family. It was very, very different. It's very related to the first question of whether ideological conflicts lend themselves to state building and development, whereas these ethnic conflicts don't. But it's interesting. I mean, I was thinking when I gave my when I prepared my presentation, whether I should talk about the relationship between revolution and civil war. And if I had done, one of the things I would have said was that when you consider the 20th century and revolutionary states like China or the Soviet Union, or if you consider Nazi Germany a kind of racial, racially revolutionary state, or cases like Cambodia, whatever. Just think of how many millions of people have died because of ideology. Um, Obviously in some conflicts it's not possible to say this is ideological and this is ethnic. But I don't see it necessarily being the case that ideological conflicts are less violent. But another question would be whether ideological conflicts lend themselves to a different pattern of development in terms of How people organise afterwards and when Anthony talks about the unresolvable nature of many contemporary civil wars, I mean you just consider Northern Ireland for example, it's got so many things going for it as a peace process but unfortunately it's a deeply divided and segregated society 30 years after the peace and then we have this this question about the social media, I think the social media makes this worse because people are able in the diaspora now to keep these identities rooted in conflict going for a whole generation in the diaspora and so it, it's almost like I mean to give you an example I had a PhD student who graduated last month that studied um, Turkish Kurdish intelligentsia in Europe who were all interested in a massacre by the Turkish state in 1938 in the southeast of Turkey, and the way they've spent decades and decades and decades arguing about this, reliving this, trying to put this on the agenda. And so this social media aspect is, is very, very important, but I think in terms of the violence, we cannot say that because of conflict is ethnic, it's therefore worse. Yes,
0: please.
1: This is a rather ill-formed question, but I, I want to ask you about the role of external states. Oh. I see one of Yemen, proxy wars, mm-hmm. both involved in stoking the violence mm-hmm. and potentially resolving it. Mm-hmm. I just interested if you see a pattern of where those conflicts are driven by external states, whether they persist longer, whether they don't resolve as easily as those which are internal, where there's external involvement to try and resolve. I think two things. Look at Syria. I have a student that I'm teaching this year who just said to me, don't keep referring casually to Syria as a civil war. It started as a democratic revolution. Within a year and a half, all the people who were making the initiative on the ground were foreign troops and proxies of foreign powers. And this is what's made it so destructive. I think personally, even though, you know, we've all used this language of internal conflict and internal conflict being much worse than all the rest of it. I think ultimately, in terms of there being patterns of war and peace, you can see that where large parts of the world are peaceful for a long period of time is because there's an international system of security in that area. So I was watching the television debate last night from Westminster about whether people should invite Trump. And basically, one of the conservative MPs who spoke said that, well, let's just think of Europe. It doesn't have an army. Its security is in NATO. It's backed by the United States. Why is it since 1945, since basically the conflicts that were there in the 1940s in the Balkans? Why do we have this period of peace? We have the Iron Curtain. We have two superpowers guaranteeing peace, and therefore... Most European countries have not experienced a major civil war in the way that in the 1920s and 30s we had Austria, we had Hungary, we had Ireland, we had Finland and then we had Spain in 1936 where actually we couldn't separate what was international and what was domestic. So I think it's really important but I can say I would have thought 10 years ago before the Arab Spring that the international factors were conducive to peace but
2: looks what's happened in Syria. Mm -hmm. I tend to agree. I mean, I think there's no doubt that when a conflict starts and you have got international actors playing in in as boldly as they have in Syria, then you get an immediate high-octane blast of weapons coming in, money coming in. But also it affects people's hopes and ability to negotiate within the conflict. If you think, hey, maybe America's going to come in on our side here, or maybe Russia and Iran are going to come in on our side then you'll hang on a bit longer or be less prepared to negotiate um, a position. So, um, yes, yeah, so the civil war, in mean, Syria's case, straddling so many areas of regional and, and, and international interest has has, um, has done for them. And uh, I think you mentioned in the book that every member of the Security Council by China has bombed Syria. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So if we don't have any more questions, is there any concluding thought that you would like to make? If not I'll prod you. <laughs>
1: no concluding thought. No. <laughs> okay. Um, so
0: I'll just tell you what I found quite interesting in your in your book as a way of concluding, if I may. I was surprised actually uh, that you didn't talk much about identity. I was quite, you know, given that, you know, academics spend so much time um, on this concept that they find very, very hard to to to, to operationalize. Um, so that was kind of a little bit surprising by reading your book, uh, kind of what I was expecting from the literature. But I was also surprised... Um, Uh, and I thought it was really wonderful how in a book that is uh, reviewing uh, political science literature, and you're basically making your uh, argument uh, and speaking a lot of the time to political scientists, I was really... um, I I really liked the way you brought uh, the importance of ideas into this argument. When you said... You know what is it that uh, describes war? You started you know, or uh, explains the beginning of the war, the war onset, and you you you, you mention different contextual reasons. And they say, well, uh, very often they don't really can not tell us. You know whether there will be some idea or a person that will come into place that will touch the right buttons with the with the, with with the people and the whole thing. Uh, Can can fall apart. So I thought that was really something very very refreshing and also what I found really refreshing and speaking to the reality of war which I often find with the academics um, uh, sometimes I find it really depressing. Sometimes I think that they should be sent even for a day to smell war a little bit and I think that their theorizing might be different is that you brought this idea of of feelings, uh, especially towards the end, kind of how, and then we go actually back to the beginning of our di- discussion, how it affects and changes, you know, people at a very, very personal and intimate level. Not just the way they look at others, but the way they understand themselves, which then exp- explains a lot about, um, you know, post-conflict. to respond
1: I would say very quickly. It's not obvious that because there are different identities in a society that the civil war must be worse or you know, I mean I started working on the Irish Civil War, which happened in the nineteen twenties, where Irish nationalists were fighting Irish nationalists green against green, and as it deteriorated, the Irish army used people as human bonds. That basically the Republicans were basically ...mining streets and, and, and basically the army went into the prisons... ...it got people out of the prisons and it said you clear those mines for us... ...and if they blow you up they blow you up and sometimes they deliberately blew them up. Now it didn't happen on a mass level but they were all Irish Catholics... ...they all believed in Irish independence, they were all patriotic... ...but it still happened so it's not obvious to me that because there's identity at stake... ...that things are better or worse... The the, the the thing about feelings, you know, I mean it gets back to what I'm what I said during the talk. Is there something really to be explained about the occurrence of civil war? If you read, for example, he's he's not talked about now but Ordi Lang, the existential psychiatrist mm-hmm. with his concept of the divided self. The whole idea that dysfunctional human beings are at war with themselves all the time, within their own bodies, right? So that's why I think that when we talk about civil war, I mean, it's amazing colloquially the range of conflicts that are called civil wars. They're not just military conflicts. People talk about a civil war within the British Labour Party or an ongoing civil war among the Tories about Europe. Well, what about the civil war within in yourself? You know, so I have him down as, as uh, I mean, he has a very nice, very nice kind of model for what happens when a person disintegrates, which is a person is a kind of revolving vase with two faces painted on different sides. But when it's revolving, you can see both the faces and the breakdown happens when you can only see one of the faces. So that's why it's personal.
0: Well, I think, or, or, well, I think that this really um, uh, uh, sort of touches on my last point um, that I wanted to make, and that is that, um, well, B- the Bill's book is on, on, on sale and he will be signing copies. But I was just to say that it's really, you know, r- written in an unexpected way. He brings in lots of literature, lots of art into discussion. Uh, you know, his, uh, you know the, the cover is Goya, and you know, and then his kind of deep theoretical academic debate really sort of starts off with uh, quotes from poems or literature stories from all kinds of different places, as well as the uh, as well as uh, paintings. So that is that was quite something, uh, quite enjoyable. I hope uh,
2: everyone see, agrees. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so it's a great book, uh,
0: so so I really would like to thank you both, Bill, for uh, you know, writing this book and uh, giving us this occasion, Anthony. The, that was really very insightful. I think uh, kind of a reality check a little bit on uh, on the academics and theorizing, but also a nice way how these these two strands of thinking about conflict can uh, uh, come together. Thank you all for your uh, questions. We hope to see you uh, at some of our future uh, events. And as I said, uh, the book is on sale outside. Thank you very much.